Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning and welcome to Hay and uh, to this event which is part of the Cambridge University series. Zoe Svensson is a lecturer in drama and theatre performance uh, at the Faculty of English at the University of Cambridge. She's also a theatre director and dramaturg of production Renaissance plays. Paul Mason is a journalist and broadcaster. He was the culture and digital editor of Channel 4 News, becoming economics editor in 2014. Uh, he'll be speaking later on in this, this, uh, this afternoon about his latest book, Post-Capitalism. Uh, but today, they're here to talk about Shakespeare and a new project um, which is uh, looking at the uh, development and uh, sort of new, a new approach to, to talking about Shakespeare, which is a new project at the Young Vic in London. So uh, please do give Paul and Zoe a warm hey welcome. Hello. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, Nice to see you. Um, so, me and Zoe are going to talk you through um, a project we're working on. Where's my clicker? Hold on a minute. Right, because we're going to do clicking. There it is. Um, a project we're working on uh, under the auspices of the Young Vic, uh, which we call, um, in kind of its code name, is Shakespeareonomics, uh, subtitled Into Capitalism and Out Again. Um, so, to explain, I'm interested in big economic transitions, and I've often thought that what goes on in Shakespeare is really good evidence of the only really big economic transition that we as economic historians have documented, and that is the transition between feudalism and early mercantile, as we call it, merchant capitalism. Um, in other words, as Sir Francis Bacon puts it, um, gunpowder, the compass and the printed word, he writes in 1620, have changed the face of all the world. And Shakespeare, to me, and I think increasingly to us, is, is a great example of, of how. How is it, how has the world changed? And how has, what kind of human transition is going on? So this conversation between us started uh, partly because I wrote kind of confidently in my book, that, that, that if, you, if you read the history plays, you can read them almost like Game of Thrones. It's like a meaningless set of events in which people just stab each other and kill each other. Um, and when you try and ask, well, what is the meaning? Sometimes we, we, we reach for obvious Renaissance meanings, like obviously, you know, Richard III is a Machiavellian Renaissance man. But it's also often said that they're just they're Tudor propaganda. So the, the, the subtitle all of, of all of them could be, the past was shit. You know, the, it, it was terrible before Queen Elizabeth comes along. But actually, there's a lot more for the economic historian to find. Um, in, in fact, what you are reading about is, um, is the dissolution of feudalism. Uh, that what we call in economic history the general crisis of feudalism that opens up after 1345, after the Black Death wipes out between a third and a half of all people, um, kind of apocalyptically changing people's psychology, but more importantly, changing the balance between workers and bosses 
and it, make, and it makes the feudal model very unstable. You get loads of revolts, and some of which you even see in Shakespeare itself. But you get the crisis of feudalism. Now, for us, economic historians, there's a big debate going on. And it's a debate that's very relevant to today because the question that we ask is, did feudalism collapse because of its internal contradictions or because external stuff happened to it, like the Black Death, like ecological disaster? And if you read the history closely, it's fairly clear Shakespeare is very engaged with the internal dissolution of, of feudalism. That is, the, Shakespeare is very interested in what was wrong with the social system as money flows into a system that's essentially based on obligation and fealty. What happens to the system when money corrodes it? Um, but then what's interesting is if you then read the comedies and tragedies and even the so-called problem plays, what are they about? They are about an ideal present. To me, I have always interpreted them as, a, as an ideal economic present in which the, the ideal setting is nearly always, interestingly for a man writing in London, the ideal setting is a maritime republic. So it's maritime, it's a city-state, its money is based on trade, and it is often a republic or a benign monarchy or a benign doge ship, as in the case of Venice. Um, Venice and Genoa and the other Italian city-states, which were the quintessential early capitalist trading uh, economies, are the ideal setting. And, and I kind of, in my mind, did this interview with, with, yeah, I kind of, with Shakespeare, which goes like this. Shakespeare, what are these plays about, these comedies and tragedies? Well, says Will, they are, they are we live in this spectacularly golden age, literally gold. We have, we have stolen a million ounces in one ship of gold from Peru, the Spanish. And our, Queen Elizabeth's, privateers are busy raking this in bit by bit from, from you know, the, the Spanish galleons as much as we can. And this money flooding into our economy is way more than the surplus that could have been generated even by the most successful banker or merchant simply trading. It's, it's stolen money. It's an amazing amount. And, and what is it doing to us, um, Will, I ask him? Well, this is the issue. Because what we found out is that freedom can mess you up. And that if this old Game of Thrones type story where stab, kill, maim, torture, that was bad. But we kind of knew what was bad about that. But look what's bad about the new bit. Uh, the new bit, people fall in love. And yeah, they try and overcome uh, old traditional forms of, you know, that say you can't fall in love. But then even while they're doing it, things happen to them that are to do with themselves and about the emergence of a new kind of individual human being. So that's where I got up to in my kind of, you know, the, I should add that there is a kind of space at the Globe Theatre that is kind of literally the same shape as my backside because I am so obsessed with watching these things in, uh, in as close as possible as they could have been performed uh, then. Um, so it's about a human transition. And so we met each other and we decided that we should maybe try and do something more than literary criticism about this, and came up with this uh, project, which we'll refer to in a bit, um, a bit more. So, Zoe. Um, so, yes, I'm going to describe a little bit about how we're attempting to um, take this forward. Um, so I met Paul um, because he came to see a show that I did at the Young Vic called World Factory, which was about consumer capitalism. Um, and I hadn't... He, Paul was talking to me about some of the things he's just um, said now, and I hadn't really clocked that. I've worked with 
Shakespeare off and on for many, many years. Um, and last year did a production of Measure for Measure at the Young Vic. So I've been thinking about all sorts of things to do with Shakespeare, but I haven't really understood this underlying, the potential of this underlying scaffold um, that is uh, enabled by thinking through the economics of it. So we decided that we'd try and attempt a, what we're sort of calling a structural economic analysis of the plays. Um, and we corralled a, a whole lot of young directors at the Young Vic um, into, into working with us. So we did a kind of theatre economics boot camp for uh, a, a few days at the Young Vic earlier this year, where, um, where we took the the directors and all of us, myself included, are highly unused as theatre makers to answering, to asking a series of um, questions of the plays that are not to do with immediately what the, um, you know, the objective of the character is, which is a Stanislavskian term, is not to do with how the characters feel about one another, but much more specifically about what the underlying economic structures are. Um, and these sort of boil down to thinking about land who owns it, or is it actually owned or, or more within a, a feudal context? You know, how is sexual desire driving the characters? Is, are the marriages within a system of obligation, or are they flouting the kind of social structures? Um, what's happening to money, and, and, and how is it playing out? Um, and one of the things that Paul's identif identified, which maybe you should Talk, we'll talk more clearly about them, I can, um, about the way that money, um, that bargains and bargaining becomes sort of monetized. Well, I mean, what, we, what we're doing is, so what, what did we throw at these directors? We threw a, an Excel spreadsheet or, you know, a, 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 a questionnaire. Um, and that was, again, quite a big thing for them. And, and it was, I, I wanted to make the questions quite simple, like, do they, do they, does, does this character carry money? Does this character carry a book? If so, is the book secular or religious? And it was, it was a series of binaries, wasn't it? But, but, and, and as soon as you start doing that, I think it creates questions for, for people who, who, um, who are obsessed with what's my motivation type Stanislavskianism. But yeah, we immediately hit on problems like, well... And I'll talk a bit later about this, about what is Iago doing? What, what is Iago... What, what money does Iago use? Uh, we'll come back to it. But, yeah, so it's, it's things like that. Yeah. And so, the, the, so what starts to emerge when you, when you kind of take a, a kind of diff, very different kind of lens to look through the plays on is that what you're seeing across the plays is a kind of separation of individual from their situation. So the, so the um, situation of what, what we now call character, although, um, as you may well know, the term character meant the shape of a letter at the time. So we're already kind of imposing a kind of idea of a psychological through line of, a, of an individual on the notion of, of these figures. So... Um, Scholars call, generally describe them as parts or, or figures. Um, but what's interesting for us is, of course, working with theatre directors, people find it very difficult to conceptualise it as anything other than a character. As, you know, if, if an actor is going to embody them on stage, they want to know who, who they actually are. But the thing that's, that's fascinating then is that there's this kind of um, tussle going on in the plays between notions of freedom and notions of obligation and they play out in in really different ways um in different plays but th some of the things that i've found most um sort of instructive or, or sort of juicy from from starting this process um is for example the way that at the end of richard ii um 
he, you know, he hits rock bottom and he kind of says, until I know how to be a man, I don't really deserve to be a king. Um, and it's a kind of extraordinary moment. And a, a couple of years ago, I did a production of Edward II at the National as, as dramaturg. And we were really uh, you know, sort of reimagining that, that play. Um, but what happens at the end of that play, we think it's extremely anarchic, extremely iconoclastic. However, a patrilineal little line is restored at the end. Edward III, Edward's son, comes to the throne. He restores order. At the end of Richard II, which effectively follows a similar kind of um, process of the deposing of a, of a profligate king, um, it's not possible any longer for that kind of restoration. So Bolingbroke, later Henry the, uh, Henry the Fourth, comes in and, and takes over. Um, and then what you get is Prince Hal uh, in the Henry the Fourth plays, um, who goes on to become Henry V. And Hal says very clearly, he says, I know who I am, and I'm not my situation. So he spends a lot of the Henry IV plays, uh, particularly the, the, the first one, hanging out with Falstaff and his um, dodgy crew in, in the taverns. Um, but he, and this is just uh, to, to, to quote how, you know, to quote the, the, the character directly, um, he says, yet herein will I imitate the sun who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at. So here we see this gap opening up where he is saying, I know who I am, and I know I will be a great king, but I'm going I'm to let everybody think I'm a rascal, and then I'm going to shine. So this idea of being him pleasing himself, being an agent with a capacity to act that is separate from the situation in which he finds himself is a kind of radically different proposition. And it's something we're so attuned to. We, we so imagine ourselves as people who can make choices. This is the sort of fundamental structure of how we think of ourselves now, that, um, that it's hard to go, it's hard to sort of think our way back. And that's one of the things that doing this quite brutal kind of... Um, set of questions with this database is actually is enabling us to do to see a very to see the emergence of of the way that capitalist economic structures structure how we think of ourselves as people so so what what one of the things that comes out with this is that when when the directors were confronted with a series of so they had to go away and, and analyze characters and what we'll do so, so let me tell you what we're going to do so we will eventually open this up I mean, this year, we will open up the database so that you, your friends, your school children can just all have a go at it. And, and it will be open source in the sense that nobody can own it. It will be a piece of collectively owned intellectual property that might have millions of entries in the end. I mean, there are only a finite number of Shakespeare characters. But we're also looking at um, other contemporary, uh, you know, sort of early 17th century, late 16th century drama, and you can talk a bit more about this. But so we, you know, it, it's it, once you start asking the question of directors, right? Does money transact? Do they have a book? Do they not have a book? Do they believe in God? What they want to do is add more questions, right? Because yeah. and, and what I try to do, I, I actually am a fundamentalist. I said you could even do it with the three criteria created by Bacon, which is gunpowder, the compass, and the printed word. Does this character have any relationship to gunpowder, compass, or the printed word? In which case, we could we could put them in a binary little silo called you know 
early modern people uh, or not. And of course, th there are characters who cross over. As I said, Richard III is effectively a, a, an early modern person. Let's have a look at... Um, but we'll come back to this. These are our Twitter handles, uh, in case anybody wants to talk to us direct. Uh, Zoe, your, your Metis projects, very objectivised. Um, so this is the thing that I talked to. Uh, the, this is my basic sort of, for idiots, difference between feudalism and early capitalism uh, slide, where we talked about, you know, to the directors about what, what is feudalism. In feudalism, you know, the economy is based on land, Power is based on obligation. The elite are landowners. The surplus is physical. That's why we've travelled around here in the feudal part of this part of the world. Big, the big things are banks and churches. Sorry, not banks and churches. Barns and churches. The banking is subcutaneous at this point. Growth is slow, and the ideology is religion. And then there's my sort of for idiots version of what, what the, the difference between capitalism and feudalism. Of course... Uh, there are other versions available. Uh, there are a thousand PhDs a year probably written about why oh, that's too simple. But um, it is interesting because it makes you then think about... The, see, the purpose of this for me is not to arm a bunch of theatre directors to do theatre, but it's also not economic history. It's more about saying, what, what can we learn about the economics of the text if we approach it purely by spotting, looking for economic or quasi-economic behavioural things that indicate that a character is on this right-hand side of the things. And, I mean, and, a, and a really simple one is Hamlet, because we, we all obsess, well, what's Hamlet about? Is the madness feigned or real? Is the grief failed or real? What is his... You know, he is the ultimate character. But to me, if you do this analysis, the story of Hamlet becomes really simple. It is... Four student radicals fuck up Denmark. That's what it's about. So he, him, Horatio, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who don't do what they're told, they, they overthrow the existing order. Of course, it's about a lot more than that. But why do we know they are different kind of people? Because for me, the signifiers of the books, they're all carrying books. They're all carrying philosophy around with them. And so... And that's the thing. What is the, that? It's the product of a university education. We know which university they've been to. And, and if we wanted to research, we could find things out like, literally, in Shakespeare's time, how many people were at that university for a number of years in a lifetime. Therefore, how many graduates of, of Wittenberg lived at the time? And we could probably find out what they actually did. And, and you could even ask yourself then, how many of them had Shakespeare met? Um, these are questions that literary criticism kind of often doesn't ask. And also practising theatre people don't ask, do they? they? They ask things like, you know, what, all the other th things about Shakespeare. But then there's this question about, OK, suppose they do transact money. It's really, I mean, questions, are, obvious questions are, and these have been researched, what is the rate of interest that Shylock charges? And why is it so absurd? Because the interest rates are high anyway in early capitalism because risks are high, because everybody's making money from long voyages that they have to arbitrage, arbitrate the risk on exchanges. And so the Rialto is an exchange, effectively. But why is it so outrageous that, that he asks this, this high rate of interest? That, we, we can do that. Um, but then what was really interesting was then we, we started to find bits and bobs in the text that were, um, this is where I try and, with, without my glasses, or with my glasses, quote um, Othello. 
See, the very first um, scene of Othello, you've got Iago complaining that he hasn't been given the, the role that Cassio gets, the lieutenant uh, to, to Othello. And he says, three great ones of the city in personal suit to make me, his lieutenant, off-capped to him. And by the faith of man, I know my price. I am worth no worse a place. So that's the first thing. So we asked ourselves, right, is that feudal corruption or is it capitalist corruption? And what, what's the difference? Well, I've been reporting from China a lot and, and I kind of know what, capital, what capitalist corruption looks like. What it tends to look like is that if you do somebody a favour, it is almost directly calculable what favour you should get back. It's not like, hey, you know, it's, I've, I've been serving you so, for years, so I should be your lieutenant. It is, I've done this for you. And then we find later in the speech, I, of whom his eyes had seen the proof at Rhodes, at Cyprus, and on other grounds, Christian and heathen, must be believed and calmed by debitor and creditor, this countercaster, Cassio, he, in good time, must his lieutenant be. So it's very clear from this that there is like a currency. There's a currency of favours that, that must be observed exactly, not that, hey, you just get the lieutenantship. He says it later, again, just later in the scene. In the olden days, uh, Iago implies, "'Tis the curse of service.'" Preferment goes by letter and affection and not by the old gradation where each second stood heir to the first. So there's a, there's an econo there's a political economy. And I think, it's true, this is, that was a surprise to people who'd lived their entire life in the theatre and studying Shakespeare. So we think there's kind of value in doing this. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I mean, an, an equivalent for me as sort of discovery was um, having, having thought of um, the history plays as a kind of Game of Thrones style sort of just lots of men fighting one another. <laughs> but, I mean, not as uh, interesting as I, as I might. When you actually look at the nature of um, how the different kinds of insurrection happen through the plays, they, they, they mark out a similar kind of pattern towards something that's much more abstracted. So you get um, a, a very... A sort of beautifully feudal um, uh, fight at the start of Richard II that is literally the, the uh, Mowbray and Bolingbroke throwing down their gauge and challenging one another. Um, then you, then later you, you the ne the next insurrection um, is a family drama where Ormel. Um, is discovered with letters that reveal that he is planning to, uh, to overthrow the king. And he's dragged before him. And his mother comes in and says, please, please, my boy's done wrong. I know he's done wrong, but don't kill him. And the father comes in, no, kill him, kill him. And this, you know, it's sort of brilliant. So that sort of transitions into another form. And then by the time you get to Henry V, Henry V is sitting, as I imagine it, at a board table. Uh, you know, and he's got his—he's got his uh, the members of his board round round the table with him, um, and he uh, he says, oh, "Everyone's coming to France with me, aren't they? You're all you're you're all loyal to me, aren't you?" And everyone's like, "Yes, yes, of course, of course." And then he hands out a number of letters, and three—I think it's Cambridge Grey, and I can't remember who the other one is—but they open their letters, and it reveals that he knows that France has paid them to plot against him. 
So it's an abstracted form. You know, you, go, you have the feudal throw down your gauge and have a, and, and have a, and have a battle. And, you, and it's the same problem, but now it's being discovered and mediated through, through letters and, and um, a much more abstracted mode of exchange that's a more um, mm. precisely figurable one, as, as Paul's been describing. I was going to ask you, we're going to open it up to the floor in a minute, and, maybe, and, and when I say open it up to the floor, I also mean open it up to the floor for you to you know, maybe make some suggestions, because this is a work in progress rather than a sort of finished work. But I was going to ask you, what do you see coming out of it? Because you're, just to say about Zoe's work, the, the, the World Factory, which is a, what, is it a play? It's a play yeah. in which... Um, an audience probably bigger than this sits, uh, sits and has to be, be the management of a Chinese sweatshop. So you have to take a bunch of decisions, and it's, uh, and it's an amazing thing. But what, I, what you revealed to me was that the process you work through is by starting without an objective, which is quite challenging to kind of old white male people who like to produce finished objects and think, how am I going to do this? So what's the... Since we've started but not finished, what do you think the outcome could be of this? Well, there's a number of different... Um, I think there's a lot of different possibilities. At the moment, I'm kind of thinking about a, 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 what I would call a mashup of the history plays, but it feels like that form doesn't take it far enough because you're still t looking at a very centralised narrative that conforms to this notion of the... Of, um, or accepts the notion of the, of the agent with the capacity to act. And if we're going to think about what these forms mean, because, I mean, our subtitle, as Paul said, is Into Capitalism and Out Again. And, of course, part of the whole project's been inspired by thinking about what a post-capitalist theatre might look like um, and, and where you might go if you've suddenly got notions of distributed people distributed situations that are not about um, a single, usually male, uh, character. And one of the things I found really interesting about this process is that not only does it seem that without, without the emergence of capitalism that operating in the way that it did, that we wouldn't have had these dramas in the first mm. place um, or the development of these kinds of characters, but that also the way in which women are represented really changes and they're kind of sidelined. Actually, frankly, so one of the things I'm interested in is how you how you revive or think through the other kinds of perspective that are non-capitalist or, or a sort of extra capitalist, outside capitalist perspective might offer on the, on on these dramas. And um, um, just to say, the, the, the project includes um, plays that are at the periphery of the Shakespearean kind of oeuvre, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So uh, it, we're, we're talking about Middleton. We're talking about you, you just talk to me a bit yeah, about what you're Hayward. Um, well. One of the things that's interesting was because Shakespeare's sort of seen as absolutely um, central. But I was think, thinking, thinking about Shakespeare's uh, like studying 60s mu music by only looking at the Beatles. You know, it's actually there's a kind of much broader um, range of, 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 of playwrights. But I think the thing that's most interesting is the way that, um, you know, alongside plays like Lear and, um, and Macbeth, which are really worrying about the values that are emerging out of a transition into a capitalist mode. So, you know, um, Albany describes Reagan and Goneril as tigers, not daughters. But if you look at it from a kind of... Uh, look at what they do from the perspective of... Um, a kind of capitalist mode of, of, of transfer of ownership is that they don't perceive themselves as to have any obligation whatsoever to their father. He's given them the land, he's given them the money, and that's it as far as they're, as mm. far as they're concerned. Um, 
So um, what you get then in, 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 in Middleton and, and, and others later, the city comedies, is, a, is a, a transfer of values where although the characters are continuously shafting one another, that's part of the energy and the joy and the pleasure and the number of transactions of all sorts kind of speed up. Yeah, and, and it, what one of the... Um one of the purposes of, of using this, I'll just flip over to, to, the, to the, the thing, this is the kind of, hold on, to do a lot of clicking here. Um, oh, there it is. There's my, th these are some of the kind of um, attributes that, that are in the database at the moment, like yes or no to questions like that about um, uh, characters. Uh, of course, it's a man, but of course, like a lot, mainly it is men who have agency in these plays. Um, but if you if you then if you ask some of those questions about 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 characters, it becomes really obvious that there's this debate about Timon of Athens. Which bit did Shakespeare write? And and I'm pretty confident. I mean, I, I think scholars are pretty confident anyway. Because we don't have you know the handwriting in two different things. Because Shakespeare wrote a bit and Milton wrote a bit. But Middleton's later work, Middleton's work is, a, is about city comedies. It's London as the wide boy capital, Jacobean London, James is on the throne, Scottish capitalists have come down. They've, uh, in fact, that book Silver Street about Shakespeare's book is very good about this. What, what was the difference between Elizabethan and Jacobean London in terms of economics and zeitgeist? Uh, and I think from that itself, it, it's pretty obvious that something like this went on. To me, I can reconstruct the conversation. Um, it's like, right, okay, Luke, you, Shakespeare, you write these amazing plays about um, old men who have big problems, yeah, like Leah, okay? Me, Middleton, I write plays about um, this city and why it's so full of wide boys and, and how, how funky it is to be living in a city like that. Right, you write your bit about this old guy, he goes off into the, you know, goes off, bad things happen, he's in the wilderness, he's lost all his money. I'll write the bits about how... how uh, you know, how crazy it is to live in kind of this wild, new, wild west kind of mercantile capitalist London. And I think if you actually apply, if you, if you do it rigorously, with, you can do it with beats of action, you can do it with characters, you can actually find two worlds uh, at odds, which is weird. Well, not weird, it's obvious, but in other words, it's layer upon layer of a transition. Middleton is very clearly, and Jacobean London, and then Jacobean drama is very clearly later in the transition. It has different values. Sh Shakespeare's public drama kind of does emerge apparently out of nowhere. And, that, and, and it doesn't, obviously. It emerges out of a practice. But it's a, it, it's a sort of captured in time, wow, what does it mean to be a new kind of person? And and so, right, coming back to the now, for me, it's we're surrounded by new kinds of people, people with white wire coming out of their ears, wrapped in a bubble, communicating several lives at once, you know, two iPhones, three iPhones, several different identities, swiping left, swiping right on all kinds of social media, um, meet friendship um, networks. I'm really interested in them, and I'm interested in how we as dramatists and novelists and even social historians, are going to write about the new network kind of people around us. And to me, this is a study in the phases of which, through which public intellectuals, Shakespeare, Middleton, um, Kidd, etc., come to terms with, with a new kind of person. Yeah, and so um, what we're planning to do um, in a quite concrete way is we're going to launch, at the end of September, we'll launch the portal... Um, by which people can answer these questions about characters. So people can um, uh, people can input their you know, 
the responses to their favourite character and we'll go and excavate a play they've never come across before. Um, and we'll have the portal open for a couple of months and then we're going to take that data away and, and crunch it um, and be thinking, um, as, as Paul just described, about what that tells us about those characters and how we might rethink that model for the, um, for the contemporary world. And then at some point, some form of performance will emerge from it. We hope. Anyway, <laughs> um, what do you think? Um, or any ideas? Uh, th there are two mics roaming around. Or since we're both here, and you're an um, accomplished dramaturg and director, and I'm a journalist, you can ask us any questions you want, to be honest, but thank you for coming in and, and far away. Right at the back, right there, L lady in the middle, yeah. And then, yeah. Oh, yes, please. And then we'll come back to you, yeah. Um, I was just wondering, from an archaeological perspective, when we look at um, economics and how it develops over time, we spend a lot of time researching the actual physicality of money, so looking at different coinages and different kinds of forms of exchange. Obviously, it's not always coins. Sometimes it's marks on a tablet that shows how many sheep you were given or whatever. Are there many references, or have you found many references in the plays to... Things like when people gamble with heads and tails, actual references to coins or different mintings, and could that be useful? Um, yes. I mean, we haven't done that. That's a really interesting sort of specific question to ask, but the, the range of names for different kinds of coins is, is enormous. And actually, one of the real difficulties when you're doing a show is to work out what's at stake when that amount of money is being, mm. is being mentioned. Um, and it, but it definitely um, kind of starts to happen more and more more and more that they're talking that way. And there's all that the value, you know, people talk in terms of land, and then increasingly in terms of commodities, movable chattels, sort of chattels, um, as, much as, as much as money. Yeah, I mean, what, what must be possible, and I think what, living in a world of data, what is amazing is how much new is possible when you have data. And what must be possible would be to create a Shakespearean, as it were, um, super currency. You know, you know the, world, the world economy has special drawing rights at the IMF. That is the underpinning currency of the world. You could kind of say, okay, we'll call it the what? The, the X. The X currency. And then you translate all currencies in Shakespeare into that currency and then work out for the Elizabethan audience what is at stake. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't, one of the reasons I'm loath to do it also is because the Elizabethan audience was clearly quite stunned by otherness. And in other words, all... All the you know, comedies are, are set in other places. And, and the money is other as well. Whoa, so many ducats. What are, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, the, it's the invasion of the other into Elizabethan England. Now, the other thing that came up, because we had a kind of informal cross-disciplinary, um, shall we call it a seminar or a cup of coffee, um, uh, in Cambridge, uh, with some interdisciplinary people. And one of the economic historians was very keen to tell us, and that amazingly, that I think it's in the 1580s that the Barbary pirates are defeated and, and a trade route opens up from the Mediterranean via Gibraltar to London. And this brings certain new things in. And, and, and amazingly, the main thing is raisins. So raisins and lemons. Now, I'm now going to redo the... the the, 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 the spreadsheet uh, on, with fruit. 
because, because I'm now very interested in how much of new stuff is emerging into the language. Are there lemons? Are there raisins? Uh, and so it's stuff like that that we're asking. And, and, it, and there's also kind of... Um, uh, no one really knows how much anything is worth. So it's all about sort of the values that are imputed to things as well, mm. and that's very much in flux, it mm. seems. Yeah. There's a question there. That's, yep. And then we'll come to you, sir. Thank you. Um, oh, is the mic on? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in a world uh, without television and without huge numbers of books, um, uh, can you talk about how a contemporary audience would have received Shakespeare? Yeah. Would it be in line with the characters, or, or are people starting to absorb this economic argument that you're talking about? And is it actually the equivalent of Newsnight or something? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And do you want to take a question here, and then we'll come back to both of them? Well, I suppose I'm still working my question out, really, but um, coming from a, a lit-crit side of things, an old-fashioned, I did do some work on um, binary, um, binary oppositions in Ibsen's plays, and I became sceptical of that because when I chose my binary structures, I got different interpretations, and uh, uh, so I'm a little bit sceptical of data, yes, but mm. where are the moral choices? Though you've begun to employ moral choices uh, which might come out of an understanding of the data, um, and, and then just m moving on to a separate point, really, and teasing you with this, um, uh, you're going to the, your actors at some stage say, well, rather patronising to actors, you, oh, you still need characters, don't you, darling? Uh, we've got a new set of binary oppositions, how about that? <laughs> I mean, I, I know I'm teasing you with that, mm. but uh, just come back on that if you would. And, and then the third aspect would be, I mean, I images of finance. I mean, you think of Chaucer and the wife mm. of Bath and debt mm. and sex being reduced to debt. I mean, that's a commonplace mm. and so on. Sydney, um, my true love hath my heart, and the exchange, bargain, equality. Where do they, how, how, do you, you, how do you bring images into your set of data? Mm. How do you bring your data to actors? Uh, and then finally, the scepticism over what, whatever yeah. you choose for your structure changes the pattern in the first place. Um, well, there's a... There's a there's one thing that I think sort of responds to some of what you were saying and, and, the, and the other question, which is that all of it, in a way, is in an aid of, think of, of a kind of visceral recognition of what it means when someone does something to someone else. And that's what you go to the theatre to see. Um, so that the economics of it are kind of the scaffolding. So they are, I think, in a sense, they, they are thinking through the, um, the contemporary... Uh, contemporary moment, but it's more in relation to what it means to be alive now. So people will be either recognising themselves or be alarmed by it. Um, and, the, and, the, and the kind of brutality of the, of the reduction that occurs when you ask the questions in that way are actually part of what helps us understand what these transitions are doing, because um, yeah, it's very slippery, it's very difficult to answer the, the questions adequately, and that is actually what is the bit that starts to tell you about what's really going on um, in the in the plays economically, but it's also really about stripping back some of our assumptions that we, we our world is conditioned by the world not only these plays emerged into but how they characterised that world. Do you want to talk about Arden? I mean, that was that was one that you worked on. Yeah, so I did um, a dramaturg to production of Arden the Fathersham at the RSC a couple of years ago, um, and. We were, it's got a really interesting structure because it's basically a comedy for most of the play and then um, as Alice Arden, the wife of Arden, wants to um, 
She wants to kill her husband so she can marry her lover. Um, and they keep failing to do this, and eventually they manage to do it. And at the point where she sees the blood on the floor of her husband, she realizes she's made a massive mistake. And the mistake is that she's commodified absolutely everything. And the reason it's interesting is because Arden is uh, one of the first landlords, and he's a trader. So he, he trades um, in goods from the New World, and he... Um, and he has been given some lands of the, of the Abbey of Fathersham, and he treats them as a commodity, so he chucks everybody off them who farmed them, and someone comes to see him and says, but I need to feed my family. I've got my little plot of land, and those vegetables, that's all I have. You please let me stay and keep farming it. And he says, nope, they're mine now. And it's, a, and it's a kind of land grab moment. Um, and it's structured into the play. And so Alice is sort of taking this idea to an extreme. She goes, oh, right, if everything's a commodity, then I can get rid of my husband as well. And, and that's the kind of trick of the, of the work. But the people were looking for character... Uh, you know, there's, there's a kind of Stanislavskian quiz, isn't there, about that then? What is her, what is her deep motivation? motivation? And you're saying to me that actually that, that some of these plays are not structured at all around... And we want them to be structured around the character and their, their through line, and they're not. No, exactly. And so, you, but what you do, what we do, is not try and discuss all of this in a rehearsal room because you could spend hours doing it and still not get any closer to doing a show. Um, is that we we use it to understand what's at stake for the characters, um, and also if you reduce down your. Um, the amount you're looking at at a time. So instead of having a thinking about a character having an object, objective across a whole play, um, which is often how you think of it, Ibsen, for example, um, in terms of structuring that character, you think about what matters for the scene and you work in that way with, with, with the actors so that it's about each, each scene and what's at stake in the scene. And actually, interestingly, um, one actor I uh, was talking to saying it's a bit like being in a submarine. Normally, he says, it's like getting on a bike. When I, go, when I go into a show and I go into the performance, I know how to ride it and I ride through it. But this is more like a submarine because you just completely submerge yourself. Here. And, and, and so we've been developing techniques to bringing the actors absolutely into the immediate moment because I'm pretty sure that's how the plays worked in terms of how... I mean, they didn't have rehearsals in the way that we have them now. Mm. Um, and they received their part, you know, a couple of key lines, and then they had what they had to say. So, so it was sort of more like a kind of improvisation structure in, in performance anyway. And to come back to your question about... I mean, I don't know the answer to, to, to your question about how did... How was they... How was... What was the experience? But I'm pretty interested in it because, obviously, the outcome of this is... We're surrounded, I, you know, we're surrounded in the, in the theatre space and in the performance art space, and in other words, art and art criticism as well as theatre criticism, with new kinds of performance that we don't really know why we're doing them. I mean, in other words, you could go around the developed world to New York, to Berlin, to London, and if you go to what you might call experimental or contemporary theatre, you're finding people who are doing stuff that is on the edge of narrative, it's, there's, no, there's often no narrative, there's performance art, um, it purports to be real, that is, it's not a fourth wall, that you are there and that performer is you know, cutting themselves and bleeding onto a sheet of paper, whatever they want to be doing. Um, and those of us who are kind of looking back and trying to say, well, what kind of transition are we in the middle of? One question is kind of quite front of, of, and centre there, and it is, how much of this is meant to be performance and how much of it is meant to be real? Um, so Cirque, there's a Cirque du Soleil in every uh, Las Vegas casino. 
It's the most popular and lucrative form of, of performance art in, you know, in that part of the United States. Um, but it's re in, a, in a sense, it's, it's, it circus is real in a way that a play is not real. Now, for, for me, therefore, the question I constantly come back to and try and ask in a dumb way, rather than a kind of clever way, in a dumb way, is how much of the, 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 round, the mass round theatre, this new technology of a round theatre with several hundred people in it, um, how much of that was, in other words, like Newsnight? How much of it was a little bit more like, not just like Newsnight, but like Tinder? Because you, know, you will know that, that Shakespeare and Burbage used to proverbially use the stage as a way of making assignations with female members of the audience. And um, how much of it was like a communication mechanism? It, and, and what I really want to know, but I, I can't, we, I don't think we'll ever answer, is, and I'd like to ask you what you think, is how real did the audience think the, the action was? And how metaphor, how much did everybody understand it was a bit like Cirque du Soleil? When he falls off the, you know, when they fall, they're always going to catch them, they're not going to die. Um, how, how, what do we think that our audience thought they were in when they were in that round theatre? Well, I, I think that we have a much stronger sense of a separation between the literal and the metaphorical. That, that we think, or we, you know, we talk about innu innuendo, and we think here's the surface and here's what's going on underneath, and here's the double, you know, double meanings, and we kind of separate it out. And I think actually, when you look, when you look back, and that's as a result of 19th century science, it seems to me. Mm. Um, when you look when you try and look back beyond that, that those terms are playfully slippery in much more dynamic ways than we are now able to really countenance. So we're like, is it, is it because of naturalism, effectively, we kind of think there's something that's just sort of not naturalism. Um, and um, whereas actually, I think what's going on is that we are entirely capable of holding a kind of set of imaginary constructs as well as a perception of the real at the same time. And that the plays are constantly playing with that. Yeah. Th throughout. I mean, I noticed through this process of looking at the economic side that um, Hamlet, in his um, What a Rogue and um, Peasant Slave in My Speech, he says at the beginning, I am alone. And it's, it's really interesting that he has to tell the audience he's alone on stage. So in a naturalistic drama, you'd never have someone say, I am alone, because it's kind of blatantly obvious <laughs> within the fiction. Um, but of course, he's not alone. He's in the theatre with the audience of the globe. And so the fact he has to state that is, a sort of, is the start of interiority. It's the start of, the, of, the, of that um, kind of notion of, of thinking um, in, in public, but not with an audience actually there. Um, and, and we're so conditioned to that idea that it's sort of about scraping away some of those layers since. Any other questions or somebody wants to say anything? Sir, you there, and then a man at the back there. You first. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, you've, you've talked quite a bit about the, the potential um, dramatic sort of implications of this and how, how it might inform, you know, performance or, or performances. And so it's one, one thing that strike, strikes me having... So I, was, I still work in education, having worked in education most of my adult life, um, is, is what the potential sort of pedagogical, educational um, applications of what you're doing might be. Um, I think I might be wrong, but I imagine most people's encounters with Shakespeare are that is this stuff on a curriculum mm. that they have to do mm. they might get to see it if they're lucky mm. or unlucky depending mm. on, on the production but but it's kind of it's something that it, it, it's there it's a core part of a kind of a, a, a national curriculum that everyone has to do and, and and what you're proposing is is a very radical um I suppose redefinition of 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 
someone's relationship with these texts and what they might learn mm. from them. And I just, I suppose, I was just wondering whether that, that that's factored into what you might do with the outcomes. Um, well, I, I, I think it kind of sharpens what you think is at stake in any given scene, so it makes it more, well, makes it actually more exciting um, because you suddenly know, you, you feel like you're finding the detail of the layers of what's actually going on, um, and not at a sort of imagistic metaphorical level, but as a sort of something that's a bit more meaty in a, in a funny kind of way, and something that's quite playable as well. So I can imagine that, that although this, in some ways the process of answering these questions um, is sort of is sort of technical and slightly painful, like does the character transact in cash, and you're kind of looking through the play going to it, and then you see a moment where they do, and you go, oh, I had no idea that actually, I just thought it was someone handing over some money, but no, actually, that's got a real meaning at that point. That you know, so it sort of opens up a set of things, and it, and I think it feels very directly. The directors we were working with, sort of at the beginning, were quite kind of, um, you know, found it quite hard, and we were also refining the questions and trying to work out how how we should go about this whole process. Um, but we're starting to make discoveries that were really making me very excited about doing Shakespeare, and they are all people who don't, most of them weren't people who would normally do a Shakespeare play. Yeah. I, I, before we come to you, sir, I was going to ask you a bit more about that then, because you, you, you re, I mean, I didn't, I kind of kicked off and then went home, and you sat through several days working with these quite young but very intense young people. I mean, they'd been through, they're all young direct, youngish directors. Yeah. So what, what do you think they got out of it? Well, they were saying that, um, that they suddenly saw a, a different way of working, a different way of, prepa of preparing, a kind of... Um, and also the conversations that they were saying as much as anything else was the conversations because they did everything in pairs that they had around the arguments that they had about you know there was a question like um, does the character perceive a gap between their role and their identity there was a big discussion about identity and what does identity mean and then we you know sort of looked it up and discovered that identity only comes into being as a word in the late 16th century and it means something that's the same as something else so our no notion of identity is, is sort of starting to be the seeds of it are being forged in these plays but it doesn't come to have that meaning as a word until much later so it's cha changed for them I think a lot of the way that they kind of approached and I, I mean what I would say there I mean we've had you know at the Young Vic you know in a kind of drafty kind of hall you know 12 very talented professional people who do this for a living your students will get to do the same thing as them in the sense that, you know, it, there's not a kind of one for professionals and one for 13-year-olds. It's the same thing. And we want that database to just be opened up. It'll be like a web page with a drop-down set of answers. You can stick your answers in and it'll be collected. I think that I would say to anybody who takes part in it, you're taking part in a real thing. And it's also quite nerdy in the sense that, you know, I have, um, you know, people who, like probably many of you do, young people who don't want to do Shakespeare, but they would quite happily do a database. I'd, I'd, I think I'd kind of throw that at them. Um, we'll come to you, sir, at the back. Thank you very much. <clears throat> the idea of the relationship between the characters on the stage and the audience in Shakespeare's plays, does it not come from the ancient Greeks and the Romans' epitheta? And if you go to Shakespeare's open um, uh, plays, like uh, I've been to uh, Stafford Castle and Ludlow Castle, and you see that effect of the relationship between the stage and the audience. Well, it, it also comes from the medieval theatre, the, the mystery plays which um, took place on wagons going around the city, round cities. Um, uh, uh, 
so it's a sort of, and there's something interesting, which is that because of the kind of fascination with the with antiquity and the classical and the Renaissance, that though that that dimension of Shakespeare's plays has been much more written about than mm. actually what's been ta what's taken from the medieval period. But in a sense, it's the it's sort of retreat. I mean, it doesn't get as far as retreating behind what we would call now a fourth wall. But the retreat from a direct relation with the audience is is what's happening, as opposed to um, you know we, we have the term meta. Uh, meta-theatrical, and I'm always telling my students not to use it <laughs> because they because they say, well, what's what's outside the theatre? So this idea, there's one thing that's that's it, you know the layers can be clearly distinguished from one another, whereas actually the the, the relations are being much more fluid. And much so, more so to dynamic. just get clear in my mind, I hadn't really thought about this before. You're saying that you know it, within is it within living memory that the audience would have would have perceived if you see a Shakespeare play, that's more objective than the sort of Frankie Howard style kind of, you know, late medieval sort of, hey, by the way, audience, you know, uh, asides, you know. Are you saying that that would have been recognised by the audience as a change? Well, I think that, the, you know, the, the Shakespeare, those, the wonderful sort of outdoor Shakespeare's that take place all over the place are seen as being alternatives to Shakespeare in the theatre. And Shakespeare in the theatre, apart from the globe, is seen, as, is seen behind a proscenium arch. And that's a kind of entirely inappropriate architectural form for the presentation of Shakespeare. Um, but because, you know, as our work on, on this sort of economic side of things is sort of demonstrating really clearly, because these plays are starting to think about what it means to be a psychological character, then we can kind of back-project everything we've learned since onto it and not realise that that's actually something that's being radically, that's radically new in yeah. the way the plays work. So, I mean, we're, we're drawing towards a close now and I just wanted to just, just sum up by showing you uh, th this thing here. Um, anybody play computer games? Good, good, but one or two admitted to it. Um, <laughs> but if, uh, at the start of a multiplayer game, and you know, when, every, when you're playing online against thousands of people, you, you'll spend hours designing your character. Yeah, that's the, the, the art of it. So young people are really used to, I mean, multi, multi different, you know, matrices, you know, blonde, not blonde, fat, thin, dwarf, elf. They'll, they'll go, you spend days before you even put that character out into the world. And th there's been a lot of um, attempts to sort of, for computers and artificial intelligence to write Shakespeare. And right now, what they're coming up with is passable prose that doesn't mean anything. Um, what I think we could do with the database is that we could generate Shakespearean characters. Um, and then, you know, like in SimCity, we could put them in a Shakespearean world and see what they do. To me, that would be a more interesting thing to do with the data than, than, than for than the kind of monkeys with the typewriter writing Shakespearean prose. But I was going to ask you, what do you think, in terms of the out of capitalism again, what do you think we can do with this going forward to make new theatre? Well, uh, the purpose for me of, of us sort of starting this process was kind of precisely that, which is that only by... Through doing this um, theatre show, World Factory, that we did at the Young Vic last year, was starting to understand a lot more about how uh, economic structures condition how we think, how we relate to one another personally, which is my area of expertise. Um, and um, and by, only by understanding the boundaries of, of capitalism could we start to think about what, where and how we might go next with it. Yeah. Um, and what I've realised is actually we're already doing it. I mean, you know, it's sort of what you say in your, your yeah. book, really, isn't it? Um, but that 
that thinking about characters not as independent of their situations, but really trying to understand how multiple situations accumulate and what forms we might need to enable that to happen. And that's a big open question. It's quite an exciting one. And, and in your future work on Shakespeare and, and Renaissance theatre, what do you think, you know, what, what's the dead cert that we're going to see out of this research already? I'm pretty sure that something to do with the history plays will emerge because I'm just i just so fascinated by the way that if you don't think about it as uh, the kind of, yeah, the sort of feudal Game of Thrones collapse, you think about it about how does capitalism happen? You get something completely different, something I've never come across in any of the literature that I've read or anything I've seen. You know, that, that makes me think, oh, there's something there that we need to put out in public. And, and I should just stress that a lot of what we, maybe the social historians in the audience, a lot of what social history is finding exciting about this period of late feudalism is to do with new data. So, you know, we, we, it's not, history is not over. We have epidemiological data, we have DNA, we have stuff we can find out that is really challenging us, even with our view of how the Black Death spread, what its impact was, what feudal agriculture was and was not. So... It's like we're, on, we're, we're surfing a, a wave of new knowledge and it's impacting on what we thought, an old body of... I mean, I don't think we're going to find a new Shakespeare play, but, we, but we've got plenty of beats and characters to work on that we are finding incredibly new stuff. So please, you know, keep your eye on... These are our Twitter handles. You can find us. Young Vic will be a kind of pivot point for this. And, and thank you to them and thank you to Cambridge uh, for hosting this session. And thank you to... Hey, and it's a nice day, so... Thank you. Thank you. Oh.